So again, we are in uh, Psalm 139. Today will be our last day in the Psalms. And then next week, we're going to start a longer study through the book of Galatians, which should take us through fall and at least through the first part of winter. And uh, as a church, I think one of the things that we've uh, become known for is biblical teaching, just because we have like a Bible institute, we have weekly sermons with with a lot of Bible in them. Um, We've become a place where the Bible is opened and true facts about God are communicated. And and that's a good thing. And we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And mind is part of that. And so we don't want to do less for the life of the mind than, than we're trying to do But it's also easy sometimes to to go out on a backpacking trip, climb a mountain, and be so focused on the map and and following the right trails that we miss the views and the beauty of the whole thing. We can measure really well the number of miles that we need to hike. We can know which direction we're headed. We can plan for which rivers we're going to stop at to refill our canteens, but never pause to just take in the beauty. Never stand in awe of what we get to see out there. Never stop just to have our breath taken away by the majesty of all the scenery. And that's because we're so focused on the things we're trying to do and all the technicalities and plans. And C.S. Lewis talks about needing both the experience of being at the seashore and having a map of the seacoast to be able to get the whole experience. They can each tell you a lot, but you need both to to really get that experience. And the Bible certainly gives us practical things that we should do. It provides a map for life for sure, but that's not all it does. It also provides breathtaking views of God. It presents his majesty and beauty, not just so that we'll have three practical things to do with that during the week this week, but so we can stand in awe and worship him. And one of the reasons that that God inspired psalms, which are songs and poems, is to make sure that we experience awe, not just that we learn facts. It's to make sure we get a grand view of God to cause us to feel the weight of some of these truths. Because we're made to be thinkers for sure, but we're not only made to be thinkers. We're also made to be worshipers. We were hardwired for awe. We were made to behold something that's greater than us. And, and the poems of scripture are there to make sure that we take it all in. We, we were made for big things. I mean, that's why we love big views in nature. That's why we love amazing music. That's why we love incredible movies, because we have hearts that were made for awe. And so we're given psalms to make sure that God isn't just something that we analyze, but someone that we're in awe of, someone that we, we celebrate, someone that we herald. He wants us to use our minds to study him, to know what he's like, to know what he's not like, but he doesn't want us to stop with collecting facts. He wants it all to sink in. He, he wants our feelings to line up with truth. He wants us to be able to really sing these truths, not just analyze them and categorize them and sort them. There is a difference between knowing God so that you can pass a theology test and knowing God. He doesn't only want to be studied and analyzed, but he wants to be known. And he doesn't want us to only know what to do. He wants us to know him. And so in this Psalm, Psalm 139, there's actually not a lot of things that we're supposed to do. This chapter is not mainly about steps that we should follow this week, but it's mainly about a big, beautiful, awe-inspiring picture of God and the deep sense of wonder and trembling that sets in as we think about all all that that means for our lives. And so, so to start, let's read the first six verses here. Psalm 139, starting in verse one, he says, "'O Lord,' You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. So David here in pausing to, to, to take in the majesty of God celebrates in song God's omniscience. The fact that God is all-knowing. And this is affirmed all throughout the Bible, that God knows all things, past, present, and future. He knows everything that's real. He knows everything that's potential. There's no detail anywhere in the universe that's hidden from him and that he isn't paying full attention to right now. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 30, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Psalm 94, verse 9 says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? So it'd be almost ludicrous to say that the one who made us to see has something that he can't see. So Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God is perfectly all-knowing with nothing hidden from his sight, nothing obscured. And that means that there's nothing that he knows better than other things. I mean, we have areas of expertise, we have things that we know well and things that we know less well, but for an all-knowing God, there's nothing that he doesn't have perfect and infinite knowledge of. We can only pay attention to one thing at a time. We've kind of convinced ourselves that we can multitask, but in reality, we focus on in one place, and because of our phones, we're constantly getting distracted from the places where we're focusing, and so it's kind of left us at a place where we have the attention span of like a, a squirrel and we can't even read books anymore because we're constantly being distracted because we can only look in one place at one time. But God can truly multitask. He can omnitask. He can see all things, be all places, focus completely, absolutely everywhere at once. Which means that God is never surprised. He never learns anything. He knows everything about everything. He knows it fully. And because he has full knowledge of everything all at once, we know that he's paying full attention to everything all at once. Which is interesting. But look how David isn't just analyzing this, but he's beholding it. He's in awe of this. And it's hitting home for him because this means for him that God fully knows him. In verse 1, he says, you have searched me. And he uses a term that like an archaeologist might use today, that, that you've unearthed me, you, you've dug something out of me, that, that you found this thing that was deep down inside of me, you've excavated my heart. God, I am fully known by you. So let these truths sink in for us. God knows everything that we do. Verse 2, he knows our sitting down and our rising up. He knows everything that we think or plan or intend. Verse 3, he says, you know my path. You know where I'm going. He doesn't just know what we think, but he knows how we think, how we operate. He says, you know my ways. He knows everything we say before we do, and that means that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And because he doesn't know anything less than the other things, that means that God right now is paying full attention to you. He's no less focused on you right now than anybody or anything else. You have his full attention without distraction. 
even if he gets a notification on his phone, he knew that was coming, that wasn't a surprise, he is focused on you because he's focused everywhere all the time and he knows you far better than you know yourself. Now that might be a comfort and it might not. If you're out on a mountain and you're hiking, you're taking in the view of the heights, you might be soothed as you look out this way and kind of see all that scenery and stand in awe of it, but then you look down and you can be a little bit unnerved by how high up you are. It's like that same view can be both a comfort and a dread at the same time. You have a mixed reaction to taking that whole thing in. And it's the same way throughout this psalm. This omniscience, the all-knowingness of God and the omnipresence of God, that God is present everywhere, those things are both a comfort and a dread. They're a wonder, but they're also something to lament. I mean, look at it, look at it as a wonder. In verse 6, he says, this is too high for me. This is wonderful. I don't understand this. I mean, what an amazing view. Mind blown. God is incomprehensible. He's above us. He's other than us. He's worthy of worship. This is way too wonderful for me to wrap my mind around. So this whole thing about God knowing everything enhances our worship of God, knowing that he's that amazing and that his knowledge is that far above us. But notice the other response he has to this truth about God. There's a little bit of that that, that he doesn't like. Verse 5, he says, you hem me in. And that's not like a happy term. The Hebrew term here for hem in doesn't mean that God like snuggles with us. This is a term that's used elsewhere when a city is being laid siege to and surrounded. So you could actually translate this, God, you besiege me. God, you have me trapped. God, you have me completely surrounded. And that's kind of a strange thought, but it makes sense because on a pretty deep level, none of us want anyone to know us all the way through. All of us like to be a little bit in control of the image of ourselves that we present. We want to control who knows things about us. We want to control what they know about us. We want to control when they know those things about us. We want people to think about us, what we want them to think, even if it's partially untrue. When, when we hear that someone has been talking about us, that's not a happy thought. We, we get concerned about that because I want to be in control of how I'm perceived. I want to be con in control of how I'm known. Nobody hears, hey, people were talking about you, and they think, oh, good. No, no, that, that's, that's a bad and unnerving thing. What did they say? Why did they say it? Why, what, what was the context? That We want to know those things because we want to control what about us is known. This can be one of the difficulties in marriage sometimes, that you get married to this person that you're going to spend the rest of your life in a small space with, and it becomes very difficult to hide your true self from that person. You can fool a lot of people out there. You can maintain an image with a lot of people out there, but it's hard to do that with the person that you share that tiny little space with. And there are times that it's frustrating, and you're just like, dang, she knows me. We don't love being known. We don't like being known that well, not in a way that's beyond our control. There's a place where in, in John 4, Jesus sits with a woman at the well and he starts digging into her heart, calling out some of her history. And she goes to tell her friends about this. And she says, come meet this guy who told me everything that I've ever done. And a ton of people responded to that invitation. But honestly, I don't know if I would. Like, come meet this guy. He told me everything about me. I'd be like, 
I'm good. Like, I, that's, I, I don't want to be known that well. Like, I, I don't want that level of intrusion. I don't want those kinds of eyes all the way down on my soul. And so David says, you know, it's amazing, God, that you know me. And also, I feel kind of trapped and unnerved by that. Because who could stand before that kind of scrutiny? Scrutiny. Sometimes I feel like a city besieged. And so you'll see David in the psalm oscillate back and forth for a while between celebrating the all-knowing wisdom of God and celebrating the, the presence of God everywhere and also kind of wanting to get away from it. So verse 7, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Here he uses a similar phrase that the book of Jonah uses at the beginning of the book of Jonah. This is how it goes at the very beginning. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God gives him the command, go to this city. It's a really evil city. They really don't like God. So go tell them to, to turn from their ways and believe in God. And so Jonah says, hard pass, verse 3. It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So God told him to go to one place. He didn't want to go where God was leading him, so he decided to run away from the presence of the Lord. And David uses the same phrase in this psalm in verse 7. He thinks about God's knowledge of all of his ways, and he thinks, if I could get away from that, I would, but where would I go? Where could I flee from your presence? Where would I go where the omnipresent spirit of God is not? And just like Jonah couldn't get away, it, it's not like David could either. And so verse 8, he says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So David says, there's nowhere I could go to hide from God. And he says, at times I feel trapped by him, constrained by him, but what am I going to do? Like, go somewhere that he's not? He's around every corner. But he's not just frustrated with God's sovereign rule and omniscience. He, he's also comforted by it. Notice that twice now in the psalm already, David has mentioned the hand of God, once negatively and once positively. In verse 5, negatively, he said, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. So this is the negative use. You lay your hand on me as part of hemming me in. You put pressure on me by telling me what to do. You constrain me. But then David also refers positively to the hand of God. Verse 10, he says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So here he's celebrating the fact that anywhere he goes, the hand of God will lead him and hold him fast and sustain him. It's almost like he has this love-hate relationship with the hand of God. And isn't this also really normal? Like, isn't the way that we normally think about the hand of God in our lives? Like on the one hand, his, his presence in our lives, his hand on our lives, creates some pressure on us and hems us in. God tells us what to do. He tells us what's, what not to do. So the presence of God and his revelation in our life steals some of our options. It takes away some of our freedom. I can't be whoever I want to be if God's hand is upon me. 
If there's a God and he's made me, then he's made me for a purpose and his commands are binding. I'm his, so I can't do or be whatever I want. This means that my purpose can't be to live for myself, but my purpose is the one he prescribed for me, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I don't get to be my own king. I'm constrained, I'm limited, and sometimes we don't like those constraints. But then on the other hand, we want the hand of God to guide us. We want wisdom, we want to know which way to go. We, we want his hand to uphold us and sustain us and comfort us. We love that God guides us, except when he guides us to do things we don't want to do. We love that God's hand will support us, but it's the same hand that puts pressure on us to live a certain way and not another way. But what are we going to do about it? I mean, let's say we run away from God. Hypothetically, let's say that we do that. Let's say that we successfully get away from the presence of God. Now that we've gotten away, where do we go for comfort and peace? We got away from that hand that put pressure on us, but, but where do we find our sustenance? Where do we find our life? We're almost like the child that runs away from rich but demanding parents. He gets away, he's really free, but now he's really hungry and really broke. And even if we could get away from, from God's constraining hand, we'd be getting away from his sustaining hand and his comforting hand. So who sustains us when we run from God? We want to have our cake and eat it too, but, but really, we can't. And the whole idea, really, is it's futile anyway. If darkness doesn't make any difference to God, and he can see all things just like their day, then there's certainly no running away from him. There's no outwitting the wisdom of God. There's no hiding from the eye of God. And then David gives this illustration of the knowledge and wisdom and majesty and presence and power of God, starting in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So the main point that David's making here is describing God's forming of a child in his mother's womb as, as a great, amazing work of God, where God is fully present, even in the most hidden of places. But then as he makes this point, he stops in verse 14 to just praise God for this amazing work of creating a child in the mother's womb. So, so his, his flow of thought here is you can't hide from God's all-seeing eye. If we weren't hidden from God when we were being intricately woven together in the wombs of our mothers, then there's no place we could go where we're not fully seen by God. If God saw us fully when we were microscopic and in a dark place, then he certainly sees us now. If it's dark and hidden anywhere in the world, it's when we were in our mother's womb, but there, not hindered by the intricacy, not hindered by the smallness, God is present. And he was weaving us together. No need for a work light because he can see through that darkness. Nothing's hidden from him. There are no secrets before him. So how crazy would it be for us to think that we're going to get away with anything when God saw everything that we did as our substance was being formed together in our mother's womb, in the darkest and most hidden of places? 
But then as David's thinking about this, he, he just stops to worship God for the wonder of it all. Verse 14, he says, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He says, of all the wonderful works of God in the universe, one of the most wonderful is the knitting together of a child in the womb of his or her mother. And by saying, I wasn't hidden from you then, so I can't hide from you now, David is affirming that he existed then, in the womb. He existed as a person. His existence didn't begin when he was born. It began when he was still very much unformed in the womb of his mother. That's when his life began. That's when he became a person. We saw last week in Psalm 51, verse 5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so for David to have been sinful from the time of his conception, he must have been human from the time of his conception. Animals don't have a sin nature. Uh, Clumps of cells don't have a sin nature. Humans have a sin nature. And if David had that nature from the moment of conception, he was human from that very moment. And I know this can seem upsetting because it sounds political, but pushing all politics aside, it's important that we as Christians affirm with the scriptures that human life begins at conception. And that human life has dignity and value, not because of what it can do for society, not because it's productive, not because it can sustain itself, but because it's made in the image of God. And Christian doctrine throughout the ages has, has said that the body doesn't exist before the soul and the soul doesn't exist before the body. Our souls aren't around before the body is, entering the body at some later point. And our bodies, while they're alive, always contain the soul. So from the moment of conception, we're humans. Humans made in God's image. And because we're made in the image of God, we have worth and value and dignity. It's so important that we affirm that people don't get their worth from being able to contribute to society. But they get their worth because they bear on them the image of God. This means that a newly conceived child in her mother's womb, this means that an elderly person severely disabled by late stage dementia, they both possess the image of God. Despite the fact that they're perceived to be inconvenient to people around them, that, that's not what makes them human, that not, that's not what gives them, them worth. So this means that people who are poor, people who can't contribute, have the full dignity of the image of God being on them. If God knit us together, if his supremacy and his sovereignty define us instead of our own self-determination, then even if we're lacking what our culture says we need to have to be considered really human, we go with Bible first where, where we know that our worth is fixed by the fact that we were made in the image of God. And science and reason also affirm the humanity of the unborn child. From the moment of conception, a baby possesses human DNA with all of the genetic instructions from both parents present. And if that child grows, she'll only grow into a more developed human. There's, there's not some other type of creature that could emerge. A newly conceived child is fully human. And certainly, respecting the dignity of the unborn means opposing abortion. It means caring for moms. It means helping the poor. It means discipling parents. There's a lot that's downstream from the embrace of the image of God in all people. And God's people should, in all kinds of ways, be about all of those activities. But because God forms life, it's only his to take.
I also know that, that there are women here who have had abortions. And I know this, this kind of teaching lands heavily. You may be carrying the weight of guilt, and maybe no, nobody knows about it but God and you. And God's knowledge of that doesn't feel like a comfort because of the weight, because of the guilt. But I want you to know the power of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins. So that when we believe, any sin we turn from and confess and repent of is removed from us. He takes the guilt. He takes the stains. He makes us his sons and daughters. And he will do that for you as well. You're not beyond his ability to love and redeem. And so David here is, is enamored with this picture of God who knows everything, is everywhere, and he's amazed. Verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. So it's like, no matter where I go, no matter how dark my thoughts have gotten, I awake and God is still there. Vast is the sum of his thoughts. But then David changes gears in, in kind of a strange way. Verse 19, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So those are some strange thoughts. That, that's a, a, a weird way for, for someone to think. In verse 19, David's asking for vengeance on his enemies. He, he's not saying that he's going to take their lives. He's not saying that he wants, he's going to get that vengeance. He's asking God to take their lives. At least their lives are God's to give and take. But it seems that his thoughts about God have been so precious and he's become such a worshiper of God that those who speak against God, who misuse God's name, feel like his enemies. And if we could try to find a parallel, we know that for us, sometimes to really love someone can create almost what feels like a hatred for those who would harm them. You've probably experienced this if you have kids, where, where you've felt those similar, like almost hatred-like feelings for those who would try to, to harm your kids. And here David has this heart that's so enamored with the majesty of God that those who mock him, those who hate him, those who are opposed to him, the, the, the people who hate the thing that's most important to him, he feels like they're enemies. And so David's honestly expressing his feelings in prayer to God here, just like we should. He's not taking his own vengeance. He's asking God to do that. And this does show in his heart at least a deep love for God. But nonetheless, Jesus actually called us to a higher standard. This is Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that it may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. And we'll talk about what made the difference between David and what Jesus said here in a minute. But, but first look at what David said at the end of the psalm. Psalm 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now this is a really bold prayer in light of what David just said. He said that God sees and knows all things, that nothing's hidden from God. He's asked God to carry out vengeance on wicked people and slay them. And then David says, and God, search me. That's bold. 
God, be against wicked people and thoroughly examine me. I mean, this would be like if you were to say, tax cheats should all go to jail and audit me. Go through all my paperwork, go through everything. So how is David doing that? I mean, he just prayed for, for a just God to slay the wicked and then he asked God to fully examine him. Who can pray this? And so far as we've walked through this, it seems like there are a number of loose ends and, and even contradictions in this psalm and in scripture. You have David wanting to get away from God's knowledge of him, yet now he invites it and revels in it. David wants to get away from God's hand as it restricts him, but also he embraces it when it guides and upholds him. He bristles at a God who steals his options and his freedom, but he loves God's commands and guidance. He's afraid of God's scrutiny, it seems, at the beginning because he knows what's in his heart. But then he prays for God's judgment on the wicked, which is a dangerous prayer if you know what's in your heart. So it's like this psalm is loaded with these enigmas and contradictions, and you wonder, like, how could all of this be in the same psalm? How could all of these things be true? And the answer is that these aren't just David's words, but these are the inspired words of God. They're not just an isolated song, but they're part of a whole story. And the focus of the whole story of, of the Bible is the cross of Jesus. And it's really only when we take that into account that we can make sense of all of that. I mean, we know that we were made for God's glory. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which means we were made for his majesty, for his presence. We were made to be fully known by him. But we also know that there are wicked and unpleasant things in us. And any God who knows us like God knows us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, surely that God would reject us. Surely he'd judge us. Surely he'd carry out vengeance on us. So we have this contradiction in us. We want to be fully known and fully loved, but we also know that because of our sin, we're unlovable. We want the comfort of his presence. We want the comfort of him really knowing who we are, but because of our sin, we also want to run from it. But Jesus went to the cross. And because he went to the cross, we know that Jesus fully knew us. He knew our sin. He knew our rebellion against God. He knew that because of those wicked ways in us, we would just assume flee from God's presence. So he paid for that. He went to the cross as our substitute to absorb the wrath of God that was stored up for the wicked. So that if we receive that free gift by faith, we're forgiven and cleansed. So because we've been cleansed, because Jesus took away our sin, we can say to God, search me and know me. And we can say it with confidence because we are accepted and loved by God because of what Jesus has done for us if we've laid hold by faith of Jesus. Also, the cross makes sense of this love-hate relationship we have with God's hand, and it's the remedy for that in our hearts. We want God's hand to guide us. We want him to hold us fast. We want his care and support. But we don't want him to tell us what to do because that seems so unpleasant. And honestly, sometimes we believe that following God's commands wouldn't be good for us. But again, the cross is the answer. Because the God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us is the same God who gave us those unpleasant commands. And if he loved us enough to send his son, he had that kind of heart toward us, he cared about us that much, then when his hand seems to constrain us too much, we can know that even that constraint is for our good. 
It's not like God loved us enough to send his son and then had this massive change of heart and then just decided to torture us unnecessarily with his commands. The God who gave his son gave us commands. And so his hand, while sometimes unpleasant, is always for our good. Remember, he knows us better than we know ourselves. We think we know what would be best for us, but, but sometimes that contradicts what he's clearly told us, and he knows better, and we can trust his heart. So we can fully embrace the hand of God, the hand that leads, the hand that supports, the hand that constrains, the hand that limits. We also have this apparent contradiction between David praying for vengeance on his enemies and Jesus saying to love your enemies. But again, the cross of Jesus makes the difference. God's truest heart for his enemies like us is that we would be forgiven and saved. And as people who've received the forgiveness of God, we have to see even our worst enemies as people like us and seek first and foremost their redemption. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and and it's a dread and something we want to get away from unless we know that he died for all those sins and insufficiencies that he knew about and that God still just loves us more than we could ever imagine. We have this deep desire to be fully known and fully loved, and that is only met in Jesus. So stand in awe of him today. Trust him with your life today. If you don't yet believe, turn from sin and unbelief and all the other ultimates and trust his death, burial, and resurrection. Find in him that welcome that your heart desires at the deepest level. And if you're running from him, you know that's futile, so just turn back. If you're refusing his constraining hand, lay that down. Trust that he loved enough to send his son, and that means that his commands must be given out of love too and only for our good. Look at the majesty of God. Filter all the fears through the cross and go running to him.